Welcome to Live Your Dream Podcast, episode 29, How a War Orphan Became a Successful Inventor, an Entrepreneur, and a Philanthropist. I'm your host, Lena Lee. Before I start the show today, I want to give a shout out to my listener who left a review on iTunes. Daniel wrote, The Dream Podcast. I've always admired Selena for inspiring and encouraging so many people to go after and realize their dreams especially through her Give One Dream community. This podcast represents a wonderful and new dimension to her endeavor. It brings to life Selena's conversation with those who have dared to take the leap to pursue their dreams and who want to share their experiences with all of us. I love the first episode with Chef Huni Kim and can't wait to listen to all of the other episodes to come. Wow, I'm a little embarrassed reading this review, but thank you so much, Daniel, for not only taking the time to listen to my podcast, but also for writing this amazing review. This review was written last summer when I had just launched my podcast and you are now listening to my 29th episode. I have learned so much in my journey of growing my podcast, and I've also had a chance to interview some amazing people. So I hope you had a chance to check out other episodes as well. If my podcast was helpful to you in any way, I would really appreciate it if you can take just a few minutes to give me a rating and write me a review. It's really easy to do it on iTunes, and it will help me more than you can imagine. As you know, my podcast is a labor of love and I do it in the hopes that it will inspire people to live their dreams. Writing me a review is the best way for you to help me spread the word about my show so new listeners can find my show and decide to listen. And I may give you a shout out in future episodes. For those of you looking for guidance on how to find happiness and fulfillment in your career, I put together a guide to the three steps of finding true career fulfillment. If you're interested, you can download it by clicking on today's show notes on your podcast app or on my website, selinalee.co, that is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E-E.co. The month of May is the Asian Pacific American Heritage Month, and today I'm so excited to share with you a conversation I had with Thomas Clement, the founder of Mectra Laboratories. I first ran this episode last summer, August of 2018, and it was one of the most popular episodes from the last season. And I thought some of you who started listening to my show recently may not have had a chance to check it out. Thomas is a very successful inventor of medical devices and holds 41 patents. He was born during the Korean War. His father was an American military man and his mother was a Korean woman. When he was about four and a half years old, his mom took him to a street corner of a market, told him to look down the road and don't turn back, and that was the last time he saw her. He lived on the street for about two years until he was taken to an orphanage. He was eventually adopted by an American family and moved to the U.S. Even though Thomas had a very difficult childhood that is hard for most of us to even imagine, he's actually one of the most optimistic, kind, and generous person I've ever met. We talk about how a young boy who was once considered stupid grew up to become a very successful inventor, 
an entrepreneur and a philanthropist, and how he also achieved his childhood dream. Thomas' story is about love and hope and the resilient human spirit that serves as an inspiration for so many people. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited to share your story with uh, many people. So let's start with your childhood. You were born during the Korean War. Um, what memories do you have of Korea? I have a lot of memories from Korea. Uh, I have this theory that if you are born into a family and uh, well taken care of and no events happen, mm -hmm. uh, you have very uh, few memories of your childhood. Ah. And I have friends who... Uh, I say, what's your earliest memory? And they say, well, when I was 12 years old. I said, wait a minute. <laughs> you can't remember anything before 12 years old? And they said, no. But, um, but uh, the theory is that if a catastrophic event happened, loud noises like bombs from a war, yeah. then your memory kicks in earlier. Also, your survival uh, mechanism kicks in much earlier. So you would have earlier early, early memories. Wow. So what are some of the early memories you have? Well, the earliest memories were uh, the sounds of bombs. I see. Uh, the, the explosions, um, the flashing lights at night from the explosions. And so those are the very earliest memories. I was born in the middle of Korea, in the middle of the Korean War. So I, in, at my various earliest ages, I, I experienced like a year or two years of this happening constantly. Yeah. Wow. So you or father was probably an American military man. Yes. And your mother was Korean woman. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. Tell us about your childhood. Okay. Um, I remember um, I have memories of my uh, following my father. Um, up to our grandmother's house, and uh, uh, it's it's almost like turning on a video camera because I can see them. Wow! I, I can see the house. Um, I can see all these events that occurred. And uh, uh, for instance, um, I was standing next to a little boy that was was uh, maybe two or three years older than me, and he was uh, uh, lifting a bucket full of water from a well. And I was just standing next to him. I didn't really know what he understand what he was doing. He was strong enough to get the bucket on top of the side, almost to the side, but he couldn't lift it over the ledge. And he wouldn't let go. And the, he fell into the well holding onto the bucket. <gasps> and he drowned. Oh, my gosh. And uh, all these other relatives came running, and uh, they lowered, uh, 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 you know, like a teenage guy into the well and they brought him up and he had passed away oh my god so uh my child was really eventful right i guess you could say yeah and do you remember how it was your first few years of your life living in korea um it was uh, i was well protected mm. and well fed um we lived in the city and then we uh, would go to a, our uh, grandmother's house, which was up up a mountain, or, yeah, and away from the city. Wow! And you have all these memories, even though you were probably what, like three years old or oh, four yes. years old. Oh, uh, I have all these memories. I remember sitting on the grass, and uh, I think it was uh, my father had uh, caught a flying grasshopper. 
mm-hmm. you know, flying grasshoppers. Yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, and he had tied <laughs> um, a string to the leg and then tied a, tied the other end of the string to a stick and, and jammed the stick into the ground. And when the, the uh, uh, flying grasshopper tried to fly, it would fly around in circles and make this buzzing noise. <laughs> Fun. So, mm-hmm. And your father suddenly left or disappeared when you were around four years old? Yes, around four years old. And then, um, of course, at that time, and even still today, uh, Koreans are very uh, prejudiced against half and half. They're hell-bent on pure red, you know, Korean bloodlines. So um, it would have been very difficult for for my mother to keep me. Mm -hmm. So when I was about four and a half, she brought me to a, a street corner um, at a market and told me, he pointed down the road and said, look down the road and don't turn back. And that was the last time I ever saw her. Oh so I was around four and a half, I would say. I lived on the streets. Um, the prejudice was rampant. Um, I uh, ran into a lot of trouble with the other kids, children. And then uh, I... Uh, uh, was kind of uh, taken in by a smaller group of kids. And one of the boys taught me how to make a knife. Um, there's a, it's called a bandit. It's a half inch wide steel and you bend it back and forth until you have um, a portion, maybe six inches. Mm-hmm. Then you take one tip and scrape it on a rock or concrete to make a point. And then you get string or paper and wrap it and make a handle. Wow. So you had a knife. So I guess you could say I was, I've been making uh, surgical devices (laughs) since I was (laughs) five. (laughs) Wow. So you started at a very, very young age. Yes. Right. Very young age making things. And then you went to live at an orphanage. How did that? Yes. um, A a Methodist missionary nurse uh, found me and it was their mission to, find half and half or orphans and bring them to orphanages to the safety of an, uh, of an orphanage. So, uh, this lady found me and she grabbed me by the wrist and wouldn't let go. And, um, and she asked me a bunch of questions I couldn't answer. And she brought me to an orphanage. And, uh, and I remember, you know, I have a lot of memories while in the orphanage. I see. What memories do you have? Well, it was pretty brutal because uh, even in the orphanage, they were prejudiced against half and half. So uh, we were always the last one in line for for anything. Um, The uh, uh, first night um, uh, when the lights went out, everybody was frightened because they had all experienced the war. We had all experienced the war. So uh, nighttime was very scary. And uh, the kids started yelling and screaming when the lights went out. And so the counselors walked up and down on all the kids' legs mm-hmm. to make them quiet. And they kept walking down, up and down on our legs, which really hurt. Uh, and then um, a little boy pulled up his, his blanket and pointed down and showed me that you can bend your knees and pull your knees up to your chest. And then they, they you know, walk on your legs. So, so I did that. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> and then eventually everybody quieted down and that was it. The other thing was, um, uh, if uh, and another boy showed me how to do this, I, I would wake up and my blanket would be gone, oh. and I would be shivering in the morning. And so the boy showed me how to tuck your blanket 
underneath you all the way around your body, wow. up around your shoulders so that your body weight anchored your blanket down so nobody could steal them. Wow. And, and we looked like a, a row of little mummies <laughs> <laughs> at night. Wow. So, yeah, a lot of memories mm. from the orphanage. I see. Yeah, I remember this little girl, Mika. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a pond. And she had fallen in and was drowning, and a counselor jumped in and saved her. Wow. You had a lot of um, eventful uh, Mm -hmm. memories from your early childhood years. Oh, yes. Uh There was this uh, merry-go-round. I think you've seen them. It's a metal merry-go-round, and kids uh, get on it, and then other kids run and make it spin around really fast. Yeah. And some poor kid flew off and hit his head and... So we couldn't play on the merry-go-round for a while. <laughs> I heard the adults at the orphanage didn't treat you so well until, no. you know, there was an interest from America right. in adopting you. Right. As soon as they found out that I was being adopted, then they, then it was night and day. They treated me very well. They uh, put me on their lap and let me try a cup of coffee. I mean, wow. a sip of coffee. Um, so, How did they treat you before? Well, it was really terrible. Uh, this time that, uh, for instance, we were having a bath mm-hmm. in a you know a, a large metal container, and half and halves were last. And uh, the, you know, some of the kids had gone to the bathroom in in the um, oh my gosh. bath water. So when I when it was my turn, I looked in there and I said, "I'm not going in that." <laughs> And so I was fighting with the counselor, and the counselor picked me up and brought me to this other room and just slammed me into the floor. Oh, my gosh. And I got knocked out. Yeah. And then I woke up, and my face was stuck to the floor with oh blood. Oh, my and gosh. So, yeah, the, the treatment was, was horrible until they found out that I was being ado- adopted. Mm. So tell me about that journey. You were four and a half years old when you went to America. No, I was four and a half when I was abandoned. That's right. That's and right. then I was in the orphanage for maybe two years, uh, a little longer, two and a half years, mm-hmm. probably around two years. Mm-hmm. And then uh, a family by the name of Clements um, adopted me. And I boarded the airplane with Mika, that little girl that had almost <laughs> almost drowned. And right. she was uh, adopted by... Uh, a family called named the uh, Canadas. Mm. So um, I went to, uh, well, we both landed in uh, New York. And because we were like one of the first shipments of uh, orphans, international orphans, um, the New York Times uh, wow. photographer were, were there and it was a big deal for everybody. They were taking a lot of photographs. And uh, I met. Uh, uh, my father, Richard Clement, and he had brought, bought me a, um, a Japanese friction army jeep. Wow. <laughs> yeah, and it had a star on it, and uh, so I was playing with it on the floor of the, uh, the airport. Mm-hmm. And then uh, uh, we, he lived in, his, the family, the Clement family lived in North Carolina, so we got into his car and, to drive to North Carolina from New York. And this friction car, uh, there was a flat uh, front uh, inside the car right mm-hmm. before the windshield. Right. And I was going crazy moving the, the, <laughs> the Jeep all over the place. And 
my dad held up his hand and he kept saying, easy, easy, easy. And he said, then I started saying, easy, easy, easy. So easy was the first word I ever learned. <laughs> and uh, later on in life when I was, you know, he'd give me a chore like digging and I'd break the shovel, you know, because I was uh, you know, too excited about digging, I guess. And he said, the first word I ever taught you was easy, and I think you still don't know the meaning of it. <laughs> so, and, he had a great sense of humor. Wow. And he passed away two years ago. Mm-hmm. And he passed away when he was 90. And uh, right before he passed away, I was thinking, well, what, you know, I would like to bring something with me. Yeah. What, what could I bring? And I thought, and I still have that Jeep. Wow, amazing. So I brought it with me to the hospital, and he just loved it. He sat there and kept looking at it, and he was smiling ear to ear. Yeah. He said that that was the best choice. Wow. He said I was the best choice. <laughs> so Wow, that is so yeah. sweet. Yeah, whenever anyone um, uh, asked him about the adoption, he's, he'd say, yes, Thomas adopted us. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Wow. That's a really, really touching story. Mm. Tell me about some of your first memories of, you know, growing up in America as an adopted kid from Korea. Okay. When I came here, um, I could only speak Korean. Right. And uh, no one had told me that there was a new language. (laughs) Okay, so I got off the airplane, and everybody was talking in the strange language, and I I thought they were talking Chinese. <laughs> you know, the news reporters, everybody around, just uh, they must be talking Chinese. And I don't know why I thought Chinese. <laughs> but um, so um, I was, uh, <clears throat> I thought I was stupid. I thought I had gone to sleep and woken up stupid <laughs> because I could not understand anyone, and no one could understand me. Right. And then, uh, and everybody else thought I was stupid too, because um, I decided, well, I'm not going to speak Korean because I had this heavy Korean accent, this Asian accent, and, you know, kids would laugh at me. So I kind of shut down. Yeah. I, I, my mind was going, my ears were open, my eyes were open, but I just did not speak. Yeah. So I could see how people got the impression that I was really kind of a, you know, special needs kind of kid. Mm. And uh, they, uh, because of my age, they put me in first grade. Mm-hmm. I couldn't speak English. Yeah. And also, it turns out that I had very poor eyesight. Oh, it wasn't until fifth grade that they found out that I had poor eyesight and they put, they gave me glasses. And in fifth grade, that was the first time I realized the teacher was actually writing things on the board, the blackboard. Oh, wow. So I went through five years at school without knowing, knowing that, the, that. that something was going on on the blackboard. But um, I remember my first math, I mean, first test. Uh-huh. It was a math test. I was in second grade, and my friend, my neighbor, Christopher Vandenhoen, was sitting next to me. Mm-hmm. And I uh, copied his paper <clears throat> and handed the paper in. And the next day, the teacher was handing back the papers and said, Here's an A for Christopher Vandenhoen, or very good, Christopher. <laughs> and then she said, Here's another A for Christopher Vandenhoen, or very good, Christopher. And she looked <laughs> turned and looked at me and said, where's your paper, Tommy? 
And she knew, I didn't know what was going on. And she knew that I had copied his whole paper, including his name, and handed it in. And that was my first math test. And that was the last A I had gotten for a long, long time. <laughs> well, you're a proof that we don't really need A's in school to become right. successful in life. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it, yeah. <laughs> and, and I, and I just have recently found out yeah. how that works. Yeah. So tell me about that. Well, there's a, a I forgot which uh, university did a study. Mm -hmm. They tested 120 children when they were five years old. Mm. And these 120 tested in the creative genius level. Wow. Okay. And then they tested them when they were in sixth grade. Mm -hmm. And only 100 of them tested in wow. the genius level. And then they tested them at the end of high school in 12th grade. And only 60 of them tested. And then they tested them this group again um, after second year of college, and only 12 of them tested in the creative genius level. Wow. So the theory is that school dumbs you down. Yeah. Uh, creative genius has, uh, does not have anything to do with rote memory. And a lot of the schooling is. You get high grades because you memorize That's right. somebody else's ideas and somebody else's facts. Right. And you can write them back down on paper during a test. Mm -hmm. um, so I think with me, and I hit the word genius, you know, I don't think I'm genius. I do so many stupid yes, things. Yes, you are. <laughs> no, I do so many stupid things. I think uh, they took my genius card away. But um, so uh, what happened was because of the lack of English, because of the lack of my eyesight, mm. I never got caught up in the educational system. Wow, that's an interesting way to look at this. Right, so I went through 12th grade and uh, I just pretty much bombed out in school uh -huh. and I, I wasn't paying attention. So I did not, uh, you know, lose my creative genius. And I'll, I'll give you another for instance. Um, I have a brother. Mm -hmm. It's it, it's, he's not my biological brother. He's one year younger than me. And um, he took an SAT test. Everybody had to take an SAT test. And he scored 800 in math wow. and 800 in English. Wow. And Great I score. scored 524. And that was math and English combined. <laughs> <laughs> and now... What I, what I must say is, you know, school is, is important. Mm. You, sh you should learn English and math and whatever. But it's not the deciding factor on success. That's right. That's right. How do you think that school system can be changed to really nurture and support children to, you know, continue to be? Okay. I think um, school should have 50-50. 50% like it is, you know, memorizing things and whatever. The other 50% needs to be um, slanted towards creativity. Yeah. Art classes. That's right. Shop, making things with yeah. your hands, crafts, right. um, you know, and just concentrate on creativity. Mm. And they don't do that. Yeah. It's all mostly you know, 90% or more on just memorizing, memorizing, memorizing. That's right. Yeah. Whereas when 
you were a little kid, you had a lot of, I guess, freedom to yes. kind of think on your own, do your own mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. Yes. I, I spent a lot of times in the woods and uh, I played with bugs a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, there's uh, these things called trapdoor spiders mm-hmm. and they uh, make a little burrow in the ground and then they make a little door with a hinge mm-hmm. and they hide in there. Yeah. And then when they feel a vibration of a bug, they jump out of they pop open that door and grab the bug and pull them in in their burrow yeah so uh i thought that was really cool (laughs) Um, i always uh caught um caterpillars monarch caterpillars Ah. and put them in a jar and put milkweed and they would eat and then they would create their chrysalises Mm -hmm. and then i would watch them pop out and i would take them outside and watch them fly away wow so i would watch this metamorphosis happen all the time i was always fishing in the creeks Mm -hmm. um so i i learned a lot just by observing nature and that didn't take verbal skills that that was just keeping your eyes open and, and just understanding what was happening around you um my parents also um, promoted the creativity side. Uh, instead of throwing away a huge clock, they would give it to me with screwdrivers and pliers and let me take the whole thing apart. And then when I was tired of that, they would put it in a box and put it at the uh, bottom of a closet. Mm-hmm. And then on another rainy day, they would pull it out and I would do it some more. <laughs> <laughs> so they, they really promoted the creativity. Also, I remember when I was 10 years old, mm-hmm. I, I went into my parents' bedroom and uh, my dad had bought a Heath kit um, and he was going to build a stereo system. A Heath kit, what they did was for a much lower price, um, they just gave you all the components and a schematic and step-by-step instructions on how to put everything together. Wow. Now, what was really cool about this company uh, was that after you fully assembled it and plugged it in and it blew up, uh, (laughs) you could put it in a box and send it to the Heathkit company, and for very cheap, they would correct what you did wrong and send it back to you. Interesting. That was really cool. So I, I walked into the room, and I watched my dad, and he had a soldering iron, and his hands were shaking, and there was smoke coming up from when he was uh, soldering. And then he just put everything down and said, I can't do this. And then he looked at me and he said, Tommy, come over here. You sit down. Can, do you think you can do this? And I put the whole stereo together. Wow. And it blew up. <laughs> but, he, but he realized that I was much better at assembling and mm. following these instructions. Mm. And he thought, oh, maybe this kid isn't as stupid as I thought he was. <laughs> and so I went on to uh, buy more Heath kits. Mm-hmm. I made a power supply, a, um, an oscillator, a, a, a square wave, sine wave generator, an oscilloscope, um, guitar amplifiers, uh, speakers. I mean, I, I made so many things that uh, um, for a little kid. You wow. know, and while my my brother was reading science fiction comic books, yeah, and, uh, he had no interest in you know putting something together. I see. Whatsoever. And I heard you had a favorite TV show as a kid. Mm. Yes, you know, today, whenever uh, we travel a lot, we go to a lot of foreign countries, mm-hmm. and my 
favorite thing to do. As soon as I get into that foreign country, we get into the hotel room. I turn on the television mm-hmm. to see what the society is like. Uh, you, you look at the advertisements, you flip through the shows, and you can kind of get, you know, you can listen to the language, and you can get a little bit of a tip of the iceberg feel of that society. Mm-hmm. So um, when I was very young and the first time I saw the television, there were two shows that stuck out in my mind. One was The Three Stooges. Mm-hmm. I thought everyone pulled each other's noses with pliers and hit each other over the head with uh, <laughs> uh, ladders. I thought, this is what Americans do around here. And then, But the one that stands out the most was a cartoon called Clyde Crash Cop. And Clyde, it, it was both humorous and um, educational. Mm. Clyde Crash Cop was this skinny... Um, uh, inventor and he wore a laboratory coat and everything he drew on the blackboard became animated in 3d so um, and so for instance he would uh, uh, draw a uh, telephone booth and a telephone and he said i'm going to name this tele for tele and phone for phone telephone and then the phone would ring and he'd pick it up, and it was an operator saying that he owed 10 cents for the call. And he'd get really mad and angry and said, I just invented this. I'm not paying 10 cents, things like that. And so whatever he drew became 3D and animated. Wow. And I thought, I asked my parents, I said, I pointed to Clyde Crashcott, and I said, what is this? And they said, he's an inventor. Mm. And I went, I want to be an inventor mm. when I grow up. So that, at the age of eight, that's what was my goal. So that became your childhood dream. Yes, that was yeah. my childhood dream. Wow. And uh, today I own a medical device company. That's and right. R&D department. And we have three 3D printers. Mm. So everything we draw on the computer, we click send, and there it is in 3D. So later on in life, I have grown up to be come Clyde Crashcott. That's right. You have achieved your childhood dream. Yes. That is amazing. So let's talk about that journey. So you studied engineering in college. Yes. Um, Well, first I studied psychology. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, I received a psychology degree from Indiana University. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I realized... uh, there's, it's very difficult to make a living in the world of psychology. So, and I knew that I was really good in electronics and I had that interest. So then I received a, a degree from Purdue University in electrical engineering. And um, I uh, got a job at a, a, a military communications company um, as a troubleshooter. And I worked my way up to um, the supervisor of engineering slash production because uh, they created the position for me because what kept happening was the engineers were designing um, circuits and products and then they were being released to the floor and uh, no finished products could leave because there there were problems between the two. The two departments didn't talk to each other. I see. So I became... Um, a supervisor of both, and then we had an easier transition. 
of uh, releasing products. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, there was this uh, genius of a guy. His name was Malcolm, and he was over everything. And uh, I came up with it, my first invention. Mm-hmm. It, and it was a, a type of circuit, a very uh, small, tiny circuit. And he came over to my bench and he said, if you take a, cir- a pie chart, a circle, and made one single pencil line, that pencil line represents all the humans who ever come up with an invention. Wow. So what he was saying is very, there's a very minority of uh, people in the world that come up with an invention. And he said, and they all come up with one invention. So this is your lucky day and that's your invention. Congratulations. <laughs> and he walked away. And uh, so then maybe two months passed and I came up with another invention. And he came over to my bench and he said, remember that pie chart I told you about? And I said, yes. And he said, well, if you had a pie chart and that was represented all the inventors in the world and you made one pencil line, that pencil line represents all the inventors that come up with more than one invention. (laughs) And I thought, wow, (laughs) I'm getting to be more of an exclusive group of inventors. That's pretty Mm -hmm. cool. So, um, so then I wanted to, uh, create my own med- I mean, uh, uh, electronic company mm-hmm. and I had a one year non to compete. I see. So I had to find a job doing something else. Mm. And I looked in the newspaper and there was a medical company that needed an R and D inventor. And I oh. thought, Oh, that's perfect. I can do that. Right. And they hired me and I found out that in the medical world, it's a lot cheaper and easier to come up with inventions than in the electronic world. Really? Yes. Interesting. Uh, well, in, in the uh, microwave field, especially, there was this one unit. Uh, it was a test unit, and uh, they paid a quarter million dollars for this unit. And I was the only one who ever used it, and I, I think I used it twice. <laughs> so... The equipment was really prohibitive. I see, I see. Whereas in the medical field, mm. um, to come up with inventions, I could take all kinds of plastic, weird-shaped things that were made for other you know, purposes. I see. Cut them, superglue them together, and create a new invention. And there was no test equipment to purchase. And so um, the company name was Vantech. And they were a urological company. And uh, when you work as an inventor for a company, they give you $1 per invention. $1. $1. So when they owed me $6, I decided, you know, I need to start my own medical company. Right. So in 1988, I um, started Mectra Laboratories in my attic. Mm. And uh, I renovated my attic. I'm a certified uh, clean room designer, so I designed the thing so it would filter the air, 0.2 micron filters for assembly and packaging. Um, And it was not zoned for manufacturing. This was a neighborhood. Mm -hmm. So uh, what happened was um, this company by the name of Richard Wolf um, wanted a... uh, this octopus of a system. It had all PVC tubing going out all over the place, uh, a, a trap to trap tissue, a filter. 
and a T, two different T connectors to create a Venturi effect so that they could monitor the pressure inside of a patient. And uh, so I purchased the components and I was by myself in, in my attic <laughs> laboratory and um, I, I assembled this unit and I shipped it to them and they liked it. Wow. So then they gave me a purchase order for 12 of them. Oh. And I thought, oh, I can make 12. Um, so I made them 12 and they liked it. So then they gave me a purchase order for 250 of them. And I said, <laughs> wait a minute, I am not going to sit here and make 250 of these you know, units by myself. Right. So I hired some people and they came. Uh, they would park down at a Target, uh-huh. get in a vehicle, <laughs> drive into my garage. Mm-hmm. The electric door would close. I had built stairs up from the garage into the attic and they would come up and they would assemble. And uh, we kept doing that for a year or so. Wow. And one day um, I was uh, uh, drinking coffee in my bathrobe because I was going to then go up to work upstairs. Mm -hmm. And the doorbell rang and I opened the door and there were two FDA inspectors (laughs) with suits on and briefcases. (laughs) And they asked me the wrong question. Uh. They said, do you live here? And I said, yes, I do. Uh-huh. And they said, sorry to bother you. And they turned around, walked down the stairs, and one guy said, well, at least we know where he lives. <laughs> and that's the last I saw of him. <laughs> and then um, the other motivating factor, besides almost, you know, uh, being uh, inspected by the FDA, was uh, Richard Wolf Medical then gave us a purchase order for 2,000 units. Wow which then they gave us purchase order for 12,000 units, then 24,000 units. I thought, oh, my gosh, I I can't do this here. Uh, So we moved the company, excuse me, to uh, Green County, Mm -hmm. uh, big facility, and went at it. Wow. And it's been how many years? Well, May. This is May. Yeah. It's our 30th year anniversary. Wow, that's amazing. Yep, we've been Congratulations. We've been going strong ever since. Um, I had my patent attorney make a list of all the inventions I'd come up with. Yeah. And I am over 100. <gasps> I, I abandoned 50 uh-huh. because I out-tech them. I see. And I didn't, you know, when you get a, a, a patent, mm-hmm. um, you have to pay maintenance I to see. keep it active. And uh, because I out-tech them, mm-hmm. I, I just dropped them. So right now I have my name on 41 patents. Wow. And uh, today we have five pending. Mm -hmm. From that little boy watching (laughs) your favorite. That's right. And then dreaming. Mm -hmm. One day I want to do what he does. Uh And then look at you. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, I I talk a lot about, um, you know, the success and whatnot. But... um, I never started the company because I wanted to make a lot of money. Right. That wasn't my motivation. My motivation was I loved inventing. Yes. I loved, and and inventing was nonverbal. When you invent something, you don't talk to yourself. Ah. It's all mechanical and, and, and you use the silent part of your brain. I see. Wow. So, um, and that part always developed. That's right. For me. 
when you didn't even have to talk to anyone. Right. When the language was a barrier or right. when mm-hmm. you didn't know people around you. Uh-huh. So it, in a way, your disadvantage mm-hmm. was, was an asset. Was an asset. Right. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also an asset that you're able to view your situation that way. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. And so I tell, you know, my friends, mm-hmm. uh, do what you love to do. Yeah. Don't worry about the money. If you really love to do something, just go at it. And then the money comes later. Yeah. Yeah. It's better than making money doing something you hate. That's right. And, you know, then there goes your life. Yeah. Which is, unfortunately, many of us are in that situation, mm-hmm. right? You know, doing things for money. And then later right. on, you're like, actually, I don't want to be doing what I'm doing. Right. What I've been doing for the past 20 years or, or mm-hmm. you know, however long. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as someone who've achieved your childhood dream, what mm-hmm. advice do you have for people who are trying to achieve their dreams? Mm-hmm. Well, I would suggest, um, and, I, and I'm coaching some friends now, mm-hmm. is, um, you know, you can get a job and that give, pays for your insurance, health insurance, and, and you have a steady income. You, know, you can pay for your car payments, your mortgage or whatever. But on your free time, yeah. pursue your hobbies That's and right. your dreams. Mm. And you can do them in parallel. Yeah. You don't want to necessarily leave a perfectly good floating boat if you don't have another boat to put your <laughs> to step into. That's right. And so, um, so you can do both. Yeah, you, you can develop your own ideas and, and dreams and your own business parallel to mm-hmm. your current job. Right, and then eventually you have to have the audacity to make the jump. Yeah, how do you know when the timing is right? When your hobby is creating an income. Ah, I see. Yeah. Now, the biggest failure of a lot of uh, startups Mm -hmm. is they run out of money Mm. and go belly up. That's right. And that is because they don't correctly um, plan the the financial aspect of it. Yeah. Uh, if uh, and and I see this in today's business, in my business, uh, you make a timeline. And, well, I came up with this idea. I'm going to get these components. I'm going to make them. And then down the road, uh, nine months from now, 12 months from now, I can sell my first one. But what happens is uh, you get delays. Oh, that's right. You know, the molding company um, tells you, well, it's not six weeks for your mold. It's going to be 12 weeks. Yeah. And then uh, the startup company's money dries up. And that's it. Mm-hmm. And you've experienced some difficulties in while growing your company, as oh, yes. all entrepreneurs do, right? Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> I almost crashed twice. Wow. We went, uh, we skyrocketed to 90 people. Wow. We almost crashed, went down to 35 people, mm. started growing again, and then we crashed down to nine people. Yeah. And then now we, we've just taken off and... Uh, we have a lot of automation. We have automated, fully automated bottling, filling machines, packaging machines, uh, you know. And uh, a lot of companies um, purchase Tyvek bags to put their products in to get sterilized, and they get them printed somewhere, mm-hmm. pre-printed Tyvek bags. Um, but what happens is if you have a label change, 
uh, or a product change, any change, then those that big box of pre-printed Tyvek bags are obsolete, oh, and it's I a see. total loss. So we ha- we print our own bags. Wow. We get blanks, and then if there's a change, we don't lose anything. I see. We just change the label on our computer, and then we go ahead and keep on printing. Wow. So when your company is going through transitions and some difficult periods, mm-hmm. how do you stay motivated and have the motivation to keep going? Some people might be like, I could easily get a job that pays, you know, for my rent and car and whatnot. Mm-hmm. But what what kept you going? Um, stubbornness. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, even when we were going down, I didn't stop inventing. I see. I just kept coming up with more and more ideas. Yeah. And, you know, inventions are, are my dad said, they're like baseball. Mm. You go up to the plate and you try to swing for the fence. Uh. Every pattern, you try to swing for the fence, <laughs> and all you need is one home run, and that's it. You mm. are financially set. Yeah. And then when you do make a home run, you know how to make another home run. That's right. And it's the same thing with patents. Um, some people what say, well, how in the world do you come up with an invention? Um, and I don't know how you don't come up with an invention. <laughs> an invention is uh, you identify a problem. And the bigger the problem is, the better, the more lucrative it will be when you figure out a solution. Um, so in the invention world, if you go down the path and create a, a new product, you know that path. And then you come up with another invention. Now you really know that path. And when you go up and down that path 41 times, it, it becomes a very easy uh, you know, transition to to uh, come up with more inventions. Now, before you come up with your first invention, it seems impossible. Yeah, it's like being lost in the jungle. You That's don't right. know which way to go. You know, and the tigers could bite you. I mean, anything could happen, and your self doubt uh, mm. creeps in. But uh, you know, that's it. Uh, you have to keep at it. Yeah. Never quit. Never. My my dad, he was funny. The second time we almost crashed, he called me up and said, fold the company, fold the company, head for the hills. And I thought, head for the hills? What what does that mean? I'm not gonna, <laughs> what hills? There's no hills around here. I live in Indiana. It's flat land out here. And he said, every company needs a good engineer, a good inventor. You could work for someone else. I thought, no, no, no I don't ever want to work for someone else. And I also heard that CEOs make the worst employees. Yeah. <laughs> because they are used to total freedom, making all the decisions, going in any direction they want. They have tasted success. They, and then you hire one of them, they last about two weeks before you're ready to <laughs> strangle them or fire them. <laughs> So, so I had that in mind, too. I, I thought, see. you know, I don't think I would last very long in the company. I need to keep doing this. Wow. I'm, I'm going to make a home run. I'm yeah. going to come up with something, and it's going to go over the fence. And sure enough, it did. And sure enough, it did. And, and the company rocketed. Yeah. And you have achieved amazing, amazing success, including mm-hmm. financial success. Yet you spend a lot of time and a lot of what, wealth that you have built to help other people. So 
you've been doing a lot of humanitarian work to help North Koreans, mm-hmm. um, supplying medical devices. You taught at a Pyongyang University mm-hmm. once, um, providing food to the orphanages. And this is how you met your wife, too, once mm-hmm. who was a famous artist. <laughs> yes. Yes, she was a translator. I no longer speak Korean. Mm-hmm. I know just enough Korean to get a, a drunken, pissed-off South <laughs> Korean soldier to chase me around the car early in the morning. Uh, so uh, I really don't speak uh, Korean at all. And so she had to translate while we were in North Korea. Yeah. But uh, people ask me, why do you give your hard-earned money to total strangers who can never pay you back? That's right. And I was asked so many times that I kept thinking about it. I thought, well, I wonder why I do that. Mm-hmm. And this is what I think. Yeah. Uh, when you're in, when you experience life in the orphanage, you realize that absolutely nothing is yours. You know, the shirt on your back is not yours. Your shoes are not yours. You own absolutely nothing. So uh, my my mother, when I when I was adopted, kept a diary on me, a scrapbook with pictures and you know my horrible grades from <laughs> my report cards, and she wrote this interesting thing that. Uh, they, for my first birthday party, they invited all the neighborhood kids over and they brought me presents. They were all wrapped and, you know, I had lots of presents. I had 20 presents. And she said, I pushed them all into the corner of the living room and I stood guard over them. I put my arms out and stood guard because I didn't want the other kids to steal my presents. So they ran around and they had, you know, the pointed hats on and were screaming and playing games and eating cake. And in essence, I missed my first birthday party, right. protecting my presence. Yeah. So I look at uh, my wealth today as gifts, presents. Hmm. And, uh, you know, so many people do this. They put it in a bank and they pay someone else to stand guard over their <laughs> presence, right. their, their wealth. Yeah. And then they die. You can't take it with you. What the heck is that all about? So I decided I do not want to miss one more birthday party. I am going to share my presents with everybody. Mm -hmm. So I uh, um, designated $1 million to uh, purchase DNA kits for, uh, it's a a three-pronged program. First one is Korean adoptees who do not know any birth relatives. Second one is GIs who had been stationed sometime in their life in uh, Korea, and a lot of them are looking for their offspring. Right. Okay. And then the third one is for Korean birth parents who uh, relinquish their children, and there are a lot of them looking for their relinquished children. So um, it's a, um, it's, uh, I'm not doing this by myself. there's a Facebook group called Korean American Adoptees, and they vet and give me lists of uh, U.S. adoptees who want a free DNA kit. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we ship them out of our company directly to them. And then there's a, a group called um, Comra, 325 or 324 Comra, mm-hmm. and they take care of every... Uh, everyone outside of the, the U.S. And uh, we have a employee in Korea 
who goes to villages and helps take the DNA test. Um, they supply DNA test, tests to Korean adoptees. There are almost a quarter million Korean adoptees worldwide. Wow, amazing. So, um, uh, and there have been great successes. It's, wow. it's amazing. It's, yeah. Um, really emotional. You must have heard a lot of stories. Oh, yes, absolutely. Family have found each other. And, and it's such a shock, you know. You go through your life realizing you will never, ever know a blood relative. Yeah. You get a free test, take the test, and bang, you have a list of relatives. Yeah. Cousins. Uh, some of them have... Uh, you know, half-brothers, half-sisters. Mm-hmm. Uh, a few of them had identical twin yeah. sisters. I mean, it, it just simply amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. So yet, you've helped so many people to find their own families, but yet mm-hmm. you said you've never tried to find your own birth parents. Why is that? Well, I never had the, the uh, need or interest. Um, I figure if I want to know my medical background, I'll go to a doctor and have a blood test and, you know, screening, CAT scan, whatever. I can find out what my disposition is. So um, this uh, Korean adoptee from uh, California, Holly, uh, received, uh, I was on the board of directors for their group, uh, Mixed Roots. And uh, 23andMe donated uh, all the board members free kits. And she said, well... You know, I'm passing through Indiana. Do you want me to hand deliver your kit? And I thought, oh, well, well, it's free. You know, I might as well take it. Okay, sure. So she came with a friend and we had, um, we went out to lunch and she gave me the kit and I sent the kit in and uh, I had a thousand relatives. Wow. And it turned out that one of my relatives was Holly. What? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. What are the chances of that? Wow, it's amazing. The woman that handed me my free kit was my cousin. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. And then that's what, uh, then I realized, I wonder how many other adoptees would actually take the DNA test if it were free. That's right, yeah. So that's why I started the uh, free DNA project. Yeah. And... You've helped so many people find their own parents, own mm-hmm. birth parents, but how come you never had the desire or did not want to? I don't know. Um, that's an interesting question. I don't know why. And a lot, and a lot of adoptees don't. They, yeah, I see. They could care less. Yeah. <laughs> They're living their lives. They're, you know, they, they just didn't have a, a vacancy, uh, a, a thought of uh, filling that gap. Yeah. Um, Whereas others, uh, it has always bothered them. They have tried uh, contacting their orphanages and there's a, you know, there's a cloak of silence. Mm. Uh, When you relinquish a child, uh, both parties sign an agreement that they will not reveal their identity. And, you know, I thought it would be disruptive that, uh, you know, my my mother must have gone on. A lot of times... uh, we are a, a parallel society. We have an existence that no one knows about. Right. And I did not want to all of a sudden, you know, knock on her door. Oregon, <laughs> Long time no see. And then, 
you know, all hell would break out. Yeah. She would have to, to say, um, update the, the family on, oh, by the way, I had a <laughs> child a long right. time ago. Right. And I'm running into that now. Yeah. Um, I have identified, through camera, yeah. I have identified my birth father. That's amazing. Yes. Um, they, uh, you know, I, I contacted my second cousin, no response. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I let a half a year go by. And so I contacted Bella, who works for three, uh, for Camera. And in less than 24 hours, she, she sent me pictures and information. Wow. So, uh, meanwhile, I found out that I have a half-sister and two half-brothers. The half-sister has been communicating through a friend because she doesn't have Facebook. I see. And, uh, you know, I have an uh, autobiography. Yes, of Turns course. out they all went out and bought it. Wow, <laughs> amazing. And read it. Yeah. And then, so, what, what I'm told was my father passed away oh, three years ago. I see. And he, his wife is still, uh, is a Caucasian wife in the U.S. is still alive. Um, and she knows nothing of it. And she has uh, my birth father on a pedestal. And the three, uh, my relatives said that it would crush her. Wow. And so my, you know, my premonition that you go searching for a birth parent, it, that could be really disruptive. I see. And, uh, and I was right yeah. in, in my case. Now, in other cases, mm. the birth parents are in searching for their children. That's right. Yeah. Now, the great thing about the DNA is if they don't want to be discovered, they don't have to. I see. They don't have to take the DNA test. Also, when they're contacted... They don't have to respond. I see. So it's a perfect match system. Mm. Both parties need to want to connect, and they can. Mm. And there have been just heartbreaking, warm uh, stories of connection, reunions. Yeah. So what did you learn about your biological father? He's just like me. (laughs) (laughs) It was crazy. Um, My half-sister went on and on and, and was describing, and I was reading about it, him, and for for a moment, I thought, she's talking about me. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Uh, he was a renegade. Wow. He was a bodybuilder. Um, he loved animals. Yeah. Like today, I, I insisted on going to the park with peanuts to, to feed the, <laughs> the squirrels. So they were eating them out of my hand. I've always loved animals. Hmm. Uh, just everything. He was a tinkerer. Wow. So. An yeah. engineer. Pardon? Engineer. He, he was an engineer. Yeah, he was an engineer. Um, he loved cars. He worked on cars. Um, and, uh, yeah, and told a lot of war stories. And wow. So you're not sure if he knew about you? or Right. He, I'm, he I'm not sure. You're not sure. Yeah. The, the military guy that I uh, was following could have been someone else. Ah, I see. So. Yeah. That's an amazing yeah, weird. story. True yeah. life is stranger than fiction. Yeah. How did you feel when you found out about your father? Um, it was like a dream. Mm-hmm. I, 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 just, uh, I just couldn't believe it. 
after all this time (laughs) passed by, um, you you just relinquish to the fact you will never know. Yeah. And then through modern DNA, Mm. I know exactly who he is. I know exactly what he looks like. I have a bunch of pictures of him. I know what he was like. Yeah. And I know his history. Do you think that if you were alive, you would want to meet with him? No. No? No. Yeah. I just wanted to see what he looked like. <laughs> and does he look like you? <laughs> no. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. The, uh, the bro- my, my half-brothers and sisters say, oh, yeah, you two look alike. Yeah? A lot yeah. alike. Ah. Yeah. But um, I don't think so. <laughs> I, can, I can't see it. Now, my wife thinks I look, you yeah. know, that they're similar. Did you see some of his pictures when he was younger? Yes. Ah, uh-huh. I see. And uh, I would say his body build, he, he was, you know, into weightlifting and mm. bodybuilding. We have the same body type. I see. So, yeah. I would say that's similar. And definitely our interests and what we did. Um, but, yeah, I don't, I don't think, you know, facially, I, I don't think we look alike. Do you have plans to meet up with your half-siblings? Um, I don't right now. I, I don't have that desire. Now my half-sister would mm. like to. Yeah. Which was pretty cool. Yeah. So, you know, this is all brand new. Yeah. It's I very just, recent, right? I just communicated through uh, her friend two days ago. Wow. Amazing. So yeah. I, and, and they, she said, if you want to talk to me, here's my number. And I said, uh, thank you, but I need time for everything to sink in. Of course, of course. That's quite a journey, you know, from how you grew up till now and reconnecting with some Mm -hmm. of your families that you never knew about. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, wow. So you are such an inspiration for so many people because, you know, you've gone through some very, very tough Mm -hmm. experiences, but yet you are one of the most positive optimistic person i've ever known or met so how is that possible (laughs) how do you do that Hmm. i don't know you know even in the u.s um when i came here nobody knew where korea was they didn't know what korea that there was a country called korea they knew i looked differently and uh they were prejudiced against me Mostly the males. Right. Um, but I never let that get me down. And uh, in high school, I became friends uh, with a minority group. Um, Jeff Johnson was an African-American, and he was a bass player, and so we formed a rock and roll band. Yeah, you're a musician too, that's yes, right. Yes, <laughs> I've been playing rock and roll forever. <laughs> you have a lot of guitars that have been to your... Uh... Uh, studio. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> yes, uh, my studio is called Studio 51 mm-hmm. at Area 51. That's so right. it's Area 51 <laughs> Studio. Um, but uh, I spend a lot of time with them. And then, uh, you know, I got kicked out of my house when I was 17. Oh, no. Uh, what be- happened? Well, I, I wasn't verbal. I see. I didn't explain myself. And our band was a, a member of the music union. Oh. And the rules were when you had a gig and you didn't show up, you had to pay the union 
that amount that you would have gotten paid, and then you would have to play that place for free. I see. So you got hit twice. It was double jeopardy. (laughs) And so we had a gig uh, coming up. And my parents said, we're going to go to Jones Beach and go surfing. Mm -hmm. I said, no. No, I'm not. <laughs> I said, yes, we are. <laughs> I said, no, no, I'm not. But I never explained to him the union and the that we're playing, our group's playing. And so my dad went to the front door and said, you're either going to uh, with us to Jones Beach or you're going out, out of the house. And so I walked out of the house. Oh, boy. And then I lived with my friend Jeff Johnson for uh, half a year. Mm-hmm. And... That was great. That was wonderful. His family just took me in. They loved me. And, <laughs> and I was free to do whatever I wanted. Um, so I, you know, I had a lot of minority friends. Yeah. And I, and I felt very safe with them. And they were not prejudiced. They did not, you know, say one prejudice thing. And uh, so, uh, but uh, when it comes down to prejudice, um, you have, I understood that it was them, not me. So it did not tear me down. Hmm. I realized it's a glitch in their personality. It's because they have no idea who I am. Right. And that's not my fault. It's their fault. I see. So uh, I I didn't uh, let that stunt my growth. Hmm. And plus, I just kept concentrating on the non-physical world. Hmm. And... uh, yeah, it, it never slowed me down. And you share with me that even if you could, you change nothing about your life. Absolutely not. Yeah. I wouldn't change a thing. Why? How? <laughs> Everything that ever happened was in education. Yeah. And it has um, molded me into who I am and how I look at the world and how I help everyone. And I, I wouldn't change that. I like helping people. Yeah. Oh, that's another thing about my father. Mm-hmm. Said he uh, loves strangers. Wow, <laughs> that's amazing! Mm-hmm. Wow. So, my last question to you is: mm-hmm. um, What advice do you have for people who are struggling and lost? Whether mm-hmm. you know that difficult experiences mm-hmm. come from childhood years or some of the other struggles that they mm-hmm. go through in life. Um, how can we overcome difficulties and live a happy, successful, and fulfilling life as you did? Okay. Well, I, I love the saying that, uh, you know, people who uh, get crushed by the negative experiences in life and become suicidal, yeah. that uh, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. Uh, that's so, right. Yeah, and they they need to realize that. And uh, people who are suicidal due to their situation, it's because their personality is not changing. Their uh, environment is not changing. Right, the people right. that they know that uh, help put them in that um, frame of mind yeah. are still there. They need right. to physically get out of there. Yeah. Uh, cut your ties with toxic people. A lot of adoptees are in horrible uh, adoptive families. Yeah. Uh, they're you know either worked to death or uh, uh, talked down upon mm-hmm. or, and whatever. Yeah. Well, cut your ties. Move out, uh, move away from them. Right. Uh, don't talk to them. 
There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, st- begin, a, begin a new life. Yeah. With new surroundings. Which reminds me about a sculpture that you've created and donated. Oh, yeah. Yeah, tell us about that. Uh, Hyunsu was a, a special needs uh, Korean adoptee, and he was murdered by his uh, abusive adoptive father. And then, uh, so a small group of us uh, created this foundation called Hyunsu Legacy of Hope. And we came up with this brainstorm to uh, um, make a bronze statue. So um, my wife is a famous artist. I've seen her make many statues. I thought, I've, I've got this. I can do this. Um, so I started making the statue of Hyunsu of a four-year-old boy releasing a butterfly, and it's titled Hyungsu's Butterfly. And uh, I got halfway through it, and my fingers hurt so much. And I, I'm a musician. I cannot hurt my fingers. So I had to ask my wife, would you please help me? And so she did a lot of the artistic rendering. I did most of the grunt work. But um, she, she came through, and we created two statues, uh, one uh, we we shipped to uh, uh, Korea to Daniel School uh, for uh, special needs children, and then we donated another one to uh, Maryland to Linwood School for special needs. Um, so both statues are you know, uh, where one where Young Soo was born and one where Young Soo uh, died. And now those two schools are sister schools. They communicate with each other. So something positive came out of uh, Young Su's death. Wow, that's and, amazing. And I was, uh, I was so glad to be a part of uh, that whole thing. Yeah. So last question. What is your final word to our listeners who want to live a meaningful, fulfilling, and happy lives? Oh, it's a, it's a, canned response um, <laughs> but do the things that make you happy and uh, pursue your dreams don't just think about them nothing happens if you just think about them you have to just get motivate yourself and do them take action uh, communicate with other people like minds and and brainstorm mm. but you need to get off your rear end and just do it mm. Thank you so much, Thomas, for sharing your inspirational stories. Um, You're one of the most kind, generous soul that I've ever met. So I feel so fortunate to be your friend. And I'm so honored to hear your story and to share with many, many people. So thank you. Thank you for the interview. (laughs) Hey, thanks for listening. And I hope my conversation with Thomas has inspired you to think about how you can do meaningful work in your career. To help you, I put together a guide to the three steps of finding true career fulfillment. And if you're interested, you can download it by clicking on today's show notes on your podcast app or on my website, selinali.co. That is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E.co. If you got any value from listening to my podcast, I would really appreciate it if you can please tell one friend about it. And please subscribe on iTunes, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And while you're at it, I would really, really be grateful if you can please write me a review. 
It's really easy to do it on iTunes, and it really helps me to spread the word and get discovered by new listeners. For questions about my coaching or to reach out to me with any thoughts or questions about my podcast, you can also visit my website at selinalee.co, that is C-E-L-I-N-A-L-E-E.co, and I look forward to hearing from you. So thank you so much, and I'll be back soon with another episode. I hope you have a great week.